0: Let me ask you now please to open your Bibles to the book of Romans and today we're going to read a passage from Romans chapter 6. Today we're going to be looking at the grace of the law. That is what does it mean when the Bible says we're not under the law But rather under grace. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so we're going to spend some time together looking at that. We're in Romans chapter 12, uh, chapter 6, excuse me, verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, I do pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We do pray that the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit would be evident and powerful among us and that you would work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight for we know you have promised that as your word goes forth out of your mouth it accomplishes your purposes. It prospers where you send it, and may it be fruitful today. May people who have never really grappled with the reality of the truth of your word so be grasped today by you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, um, if I was you, and I've been coming to Spring Meadows for a good while. I would be a little concerned that there are six points to the sermon. Because <laughs> generally there are only three. And does that mean then, therefore, that this sermon is going to last twice as long? And the answer is no. I, to tell you the kind of kid I was in church, I used to go to the drug, we had a drugstore like three doors down from our church. It was in a small town square and First Baptist was on the corner. And uh, between Sunday school and worship, I would go buy either clove lifesavers or wintergreen lifesavers. Those were my two favorite flavors. I don't know how many individual little lifesavers are in a pack. Does anybody know? If you do, you're a weird person. But I was able to time the entire service by eating one lifesaver per thing to where I had it down during the invitation I was eating the last lifesaver. Now do you think I was bored maybe a little bit? I think I was and that wasn't necessarily the pastor's fault altogether it was my fault because I wasn't in tune to the word of the Lord. But at Spring Meadows, if you've been around here very long, you know that we talk a lot about grace, and a lot about being saved by grace, and not by our good works, or by, in any measure, our obedience or conformity to the law of God. Indeed, Paul does say, we are not under law, but under grace. But what does that mean when you think about it? What does that mean as far as having any kind of obligation to submit to God's will that we find written in his word? Do we have to obey God's law as Christians who are saved by grace? And the answer is categorically, absolutely, totally, yes, 100%. We are called to submit to And obey the law of God. Now, none of us can do it. None of us will ever be able to do it. Nevertheless, it is still the standard by which we live. We live in a day and time uh, that morally speaking is totally relative or situational. That is, ethics are no longer transcendent. There's no longer a voice outside of us speaking to us A God, so to speak, our God as Christians, who speaks to us and interprets reality for us and tells us how to have life that flourishes and is fruitful and is wonderful. But because of certain movements, it actually started back with Immanuel Kant. And Kant argued this, he's a philosopher, you all know Immanuel Kant, surely you do. Uh, you'll know him more by his influence and maybe his actual philosophy but but Kant says we can't really know what's going on up there in transcendence he called it the noumenal the noumenal he said all we know about is the phenomenal and there's an impenetrable wall between whoever you may think God is and whatever morality he may have and then there's the phenomenal that which we see and live on a horizontal plane no vertical no ability to get to the vertical now We're just looking at morality as it works for us. That's how situational ethics comes into play. We look at the situation and do whatever we think love demands. But we happen to be people who believe that there is a transcendent ethic by someone a whole lot smarter than we are. By someone who created us. By someone who understands how life is supposed to work a whole lot better than we do. And so one of the things that we get confused about after hearing the gospel proclaimed so faithfully, and it's not an uncomplicated issue, it's a pretty nuanced issue, is what the reformers called the tertius usus legus. You say, what is that? The third use of the law. You see, the law itself, first of all, restrains wickedness in the world. And it has up until a point the presence of the church in the world in some measure restrains wickedness. But the law of God, the Ten Commandments per se, in some way restrains wickedness. The second use of the law is to show us that we can't keep it and that we're driven to a need for a Savior like Jesus who kept it on our behalf and died for all the reasons and ways we couldn't keep it. That, that's called sin. But the third use of the law is the law as a guide or rule of life. To be under the law, biblically speaking, is not referring to obeying the law, but rather relying upon the law and our obedience to it. Whenever we think we can win God's approval through our moral performances or achievements, obedience becomes a crushing burden, then we're under the law. But when we learn that Christ has fulfilled God's law for us, that now we who believe in him are secure in God's love, then we naturally, that is according to the new nature we have, Uh, therefore if any man be in Christ that is in union with him by faith organically connected to him has a new set of desires and one of the new sets of desires we get is to want to be obedient to the Lord we naturally want to delight to resemble and to know the one who has done this how do we do this how in the world can we do this by turning to the law. Paul puts it this way, though he is not under the law, I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. Though he is not under the law as a way to earn or establish his righteousness and earn salvation, he is now freed because of the work of Christ to see the beauties of God's law as fulfilled in Christ and submits to it as a way of loving his Savior. So how does this work? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to look at six ways that explain how the law of God and our submission to it works and what it looks for or what it looks like. First, we embrace the law of God in order to learn more about who our God really is. You see, the law of God is really a transcript of his character. God himself is holy. And for God himself to be holy, that means he possesses in himself and his being all moral perfection. There are no flaws in God. There is nothing less than in God. God is completely and totally, in the entirety of his being, holy. That is set apart. That is transcendent. That is, in some ways, other than we are. He's not the highest form of a creature, he is another kind of being altogether. He's perfectly holy. And so the law of God really reflects and mirrors to us who God is. Leviticus 19 is a magnificent chapter which both expands the Ten Commandments uh, and summarizes them into the following statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. It shows how God's law is not merely a matter of ritual purity but is to be used by the Spirit of God to transform every dimension and corner of your practical life and all of the relationships in it. In Leviticus nineteen two, however God introduces the whole law by saying this be holy for I am holy. In other words if you want to know who I am and you want to love me, and you want to uh, hate uh, what I hate, and if you want to know my heart and become like me, obey my law. And so the law is a friend to us. It is a gift to us. It is a gift of grace. It's like guardrails on a mountain pass or on a, 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 a roadway. I don't know how many of you had the pleasure of driving when it rained the other day. But, uh, you know, there's very practical uses for the law. Uh, Especially when it's raining, (laughs) don't speed. I was driving and I noticed there were more accidents than I have ever seen anywhere at any time. It was unbelievable. Which is why we should appreciate common grace things like laws that. moderate. Just think if there were no traffic laws. Think if there were no laws the police could enforce. Then what would life be like in that regard, just on a practical level? Life would be chaotic. Life would be miserable. Life would be hard. And so the law is really a gift of grace. Second, we embrace the law in order to discover who we really are. Deuteronomy says, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways. To fear God, by the way, means to stand in awe of the reality of who God is. So What does the Lord require of you but to stand in awe of the reality of the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you this day for your good. Here we see that the law of God is in reality a gift of grace. It is the foundation of human flourishing. It's not busy work assigned to please the arbitrary whims of a capricious deity. The law of God is a gift. It is a condition, as it were. It is a foundation for human life and flourishing because we are the amago Dei, that is, we're made in the image of God. Therefore, we're made to recognize the reality that the law of God is a gift to us to help us grow and flourish and do and serve God the way God has called us to. Um, The law of God simply shows us what human beings like ourselves were made for and what we're built to do, and that is to worship God alone, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to tell the truth, to keep promises, forgive everything, act with justice. When we move against these laws, we move against our own nature and happiness. Now, I've referred to you a number of times recently something I call the poison of Eden, and the poison of Eden, Eden is Satan's lie, which goes as the following. God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really intend for you to flourish and grow. He really intends to to uh, cramp your style. He really intends to use these laws to be a tyrant and a slave master over you. Look, uh, you can't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Why not? You, you, and so he elevates the one prohibition, ignoring all the other opportunities to flourish. But isn't that the same way we think of it? I remember when I was unbeliever, I did not want to be a Christian because I thought it would take away all the joy I ever had. It would take away all the fun and potential for having an exciting and great life. That's exactly what I believed. And I thought, I don't want some Puritans coming in telling me what to... I don't want these Jesus people requiring me to submit to their way or their lifestyle. I resent it, I hate it, and I don't want to do it. And if you feel the same way, there's hope for you because God saved me. And he opened my (laughs) eyes to see... That that's the lie of the devil. He's a liar. He's the father of it. He's been doing it from the beginning. And he tries to make you think that God's law suppresses you. And represses you. And keeps you from being all you could be outside of him. You can, you can climb the uh, what Maslow's uh, uh, hierarchy of, of need. Ladder of hierarchy of need. And become actualized as a person. As long as you don't have to be repressed by God's law. But the counter is exactly the truth. The truth is you'll never be all that God made you to be or desires you to be without submitting to his will for you. The law of God is not your enemy. It's your friend. It's a gift of God. You can't know who you are and you can't know who he is unless you know what the law of God says. When we move against these laws, it is for our own destruction disobedience to God sets up strains in the fabric of reality that can only lead to a breakdown. You need to listen faster. Third, we understand the law of God is being fulfilled in Christ. This means two things. One we already mentioned, Christ completely fulfilled the requirements of the law in our place uh, I read a really good quote the other day, it was on Philip Myers. he said, Christianity is not the little engine that can, it's for the train wreck that can't. And I think that's exactly who we are. Christ came and fulfilled the requirements of the law in our place as much as if we did it ourselves. So when he took the penalty our sins deserved, we could receive the blessings that his righteous obedience deserves. However, we also recognize that many parts of the Old Testament are no longer relating directly to us as believers. Since Jesus is the ultimate priest, he is the ultimate temple and sacrifice, we observe none of the ceremonial, dietary, and other laws connected to ritual purity. Also, Christians of all nations are now members of the people of God. And God's community no longer exists as a single nation state under a theocratic government. That doesn't exist anymore. The whole emphasis of the New Testament and the New Covenant is that the church is now international. All people, not localized, under one theocratic government and one people and king. That is Israel. Therefore, the civil legislation of the Old Testament is no longer appropriate. For example, adultery in the Old Testament was punishable by a death, stoning. But in the New Testament, it is dealt with through exhortation and church discipline. Fourth, we also realize that the law's painful convicting work is ultimately, in the end, a very gracious thing. When we fully comprehend the kind of life that the law requires of us, it can be intimidating. Have you ever really read the Sermon on the Mount? Have you ever really meditated upon what the Sermon on the Mount is saying? Have you ever really looked look closely at the Ten Commandments in a comprehensive way? Because what Jesus said was, it's not merely outward conformity. Like, you may have never murdered anyone, but if you've wanted to in your heart, if you've contemplated doing it with some joy, then you're a murderer as well, according to the law of God. And so the law of God is painful. It's exposing Uh, Jesus shows us the attitude we should have to the world being salt and light. Uh, investing ourselves in the needs of our communities. He shows us that even if we disdain or ignore our neighbors, calling them fools, we are attacking their creator in whose image they are made. He calls us to never look upon one another with lust, living lives of purity and chastity. He insists that we must speak with as much honesty in all our daily interactions as if we were testifying in court under oath. We are told to forgive and love our enemies, turning the other cheek rather than seeking revenge. We are to give the poor to the poor without expecting any thanks or acclaim. We are to give our money in astonishing proportions and carry on a dynamic secret inner prayer life. We are never to be judgmental or condemning of others. We are to live a life free from worry. One pastor I know said after reading through Matthew 5, 7 carefully, God save us all from the Sermon on the Mount. If you listen to all that the law of God says, you will feel naked and exposed, ashamed and helpless, and hopefully you will run and seek out the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That is the proper use of the law in that regard. It exposes you it shows you your dirtiness it shows you your uncleanness it shows you the leprosy of our souls mine as well as yours I don't have nearly as high opinion of myself as I did when I was 19 years of age before I was converted I could hardly be in the same room with most of you but I my estimation of myself has gone way downhill but my estimation of Christ has gone way uphill hallelujah, what a savior. But the law is exposing, it shows us that. And its work is ultimately gracious. It acts as a kind but strict schoolmaster who leads us to Christ according to the book of Galatians. Now see, this is moving really fast. We're already on point five. Are you with me? Point five. We turn to the law of God in order to get a true definition of what it means to love others in our relationship and in society as a whole. The law of God defines for us what love looks like. In situation ethics, where I'm in a situation I've got to decide what to do, and I say to myself, as Joseph Fletcher said, I do the most loving thing. Well, what is the most loving thing I, you can do? What the law says is the most loving thing you can do. I, I, I don't think we understand that when we just totally push the law aside and violate it, how much destruction we are causing, not only ourselves, but others who are in relationship to us. It is a self-destructive lifestyle to ignore the gift of grace in the law of God there was once a school of ethics I have mentioned it called situation ethics that rejected biblical law as being too rigid it's too rigid it's too narrow And our culture today just laughs at any idea of biblical law they just think it's for for uh, dead from the neck up fundamentalist that's what they call you by the way you know that don't you dead from the neck up fundamentalist and uh well, that's not a compliment <laughs> at all but it begs the question when you say i'll do what love requires how do you know what is the best thing for a person is sleeping together with someone before marriage the best or the worst thing you can do for him or her how do you know The law is God's way of saying if you want to love others act like this act this way. I created people. I know the best thing for them is. That's why Paul could write the, t- the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. But it's love informed by the law not what I happen to think in the moment is love. You see all these choices that people are making today that fly in the face of what I would call the created order by God we need to go back and look at Genesis 1 all over again and ask ourselves the question how far are we drifting away how far have we been removed from the very law of God and and I think it's shocking shocking to see that the law of God then gives Christians guidance not only in our personal relationships but helps us seek to make our society a more just and merciful society what do people need what does this mean to treat people with dignity the law informs Christians uh, of political and social involvement What does it mean to treat people with dignity? What does all of this mean? And finally, we turn to the law of God because sometimes we need to do things just because God said so. Now, my dad and my mother, both, when pressed about a certain moral issue or a certain rule that they had, would say what? Because I said so. And I learned, really early, that was the end of the discussion. (laughs) There was no more negotiation. There was no more arm twisting that could get anyone around. The real issue was the law had come down, the law had landed, I say so. But the only one who really has the right to say that ultimately is God. By the way, parents, let an old grandfather tell you something. God did not give you children so you could be their friend. Some of us are scared to death we're going to lose our children's love if we discipline them. Actually your lack of discipline to them will make them more insecure and chaotic. They need you to be a father and a mother, not their friend. You can be their friend when they're all grown up and messed up like you are, but as a father and mother, you're not to be their friend. You are to train them in righteousness. Luther said, train them in civil righteousness. He said, that is your calling as a parent. And sometimes we're so afraid we're gonna lose the love if our children, the children I see who disrespect and hold contempt for their parents are the ones who have parents who do not, who try to be their friend, who do not enforce standards and I think standards are good I think children need that because foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child some of us simply hate to do something just because somebody told us to Um, we turn to the law of God because sometimes we need to do things just because God says so in the garden God told Adam and Eve not to eat the tree but he never told them why Some of us simply hate to follow directions unless we are given all the reasons why the direction was given, and how it's going to benefit us, and so on. But God was saying to Adam and Eve, I think obey this direction not because you understand, but because you recognize that I am your God and you are not. They failed in this, but every day we have the opportunity to put this right. Do God's will, not because it's exciting, though it will eventually be an adventure, not because it will meet your needs, though it will eventually be to you a joy, not because you understand why this path of wisdom, though it will eventually become more clear. Do it because your Lord and Savior is your Lord and Savior, and you are not do it because of the law of the lord do it and if you do it and if you obey him even in the little things you will know as god knows you as well you will know and find god's grace you will know and love your neighbor neighbor and you will simply honor god as god there are times when in the dark we have to submit God and he doesn't give us the reasons why we have to and why our life is the way we are and we have a temper tantrum usually turned inward that results in depression and the dark night of the soul sometimes we have to recognize who the real authority is and it's not me and it's not thee it's God he's God the godness of God he has every right to compel us to obedience and Christ has come and made for us a way to live with God in in the reality and in the truth of the fact that we're still sinful though righteous in Christ. So the law of God is the grace of the law for us. There's much grace in God's law. You think about that. You think about that hard today. And remember that we are called to obedience. We can get really laissez faire about uh, the law of God and excuse ourselves, uh, which is really to our ultimate detriment breaks a lot of hearts and breaks a lot of people let us pray father we thank you for today we thank you that we have the gift of the law and we know we understand that scripture teaches that we can misuse the law we can misuse it by trying to use it as a lever to get you to do what we want you to do we can use it as uh, a negotiation To make us ourselves acceptable and approved of you and we know that's a big misuse but it's also a big misuse not to love the law of the lord the law of the lord is perfect and we need it to understand what it means to love you and our neighbor as ourselves and even to love ourselves and not destroy ourselves so we pray for your grace in that regard and now father As we continue to worship you, we will take an offering and we pray that you will bless this offering and use it to accomplish your purposes in this church and in this city and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.